0: There's such a beauty and a grace um, to that song as I, um, you know, sometimes when, when we plan worship and we, we kind of go through it and then, um, you know, you pick songs that you think um, sort of fits in with what the theme of the message um, really is, and, and we pick the song and we listen through it, and, and to hear it and to hear you all singing it as an expression of your faith uh, just reminded me of how important faith is, and and today we're we're going to be looking at a psalm, Psalm 14, that's vastly different from the psalms that we've list that we've uh, looked at up to this point. You know, psalm 23 was just this wonderful psalm of an expression of our faith that we have a God who's our shepherd, and then we looked at Psalm 100, and we see the glories of worship and what it means to worship the Lord, and then. We come to Psalm 14 that's a little bit different. It's more worship, um, it's less worship and more wisdom literature, right? Because it's talking about the fool that does not know the Lord and who says there's no God. And then you, you sing a song like, Dear Refuge of My Weary Soul, and you, you sort of wonder in your mind, how is it possible to make it without a God? And and the falliness of unbelief, and, and again, I'll get into this in the sermon. You know, we're not trying to be mean to anyone when we say that that it's foolish not to believe in God. That's that's, you know, we're not trying to say anything against their intellect. But but the point is that only a fool would deny themselves the richness and the grace that is found in the Lord. You know, whenever I come to worship, I don't know about you, I need worship. I need worship. I need to be around the people of God. Scott Finch uh, talked about this this past Monday, about just the need to be in the fellowship and the people of God, to hear his word and to sing the songs. That's a need for the soul because the soul gets weary. The soul gets down, and and we need that. And this song was just just an awesome reminder of that reality. So praise the Lord um, for his goodness and grace in that. All right, at this time, let's turn our attention to Psalm 14, like I said before. This psalm is a little bit different from the psalms that we've looked at up to this point because this is wisdom literature. But I thought it's so important for us to study Psalm 14. Um, Of course, there's a parallel, Psalm 53, uh, that you can look at as well. But this psalm in particular talks about um, uh, the foolishness of unbelief. And so today I want... I want us to understand unbelief. I think sometimes as Christians, we, you know, we get in this stage where we can forget what it's like to be unbelieving, and that's sort of dangerous because then we, we don't have this burning desire to minister uh, to unbelievers and, and to see their condition for what it is, but we miss the unbelief that can sometimes creep into our hearts, right? And by the way, isn't unbelief everywhere? I mean, unbelief can be in our homes, unbelief can be at our jobs, Uh, unbelief can be at the supermarket. Everywhere we go, we meet people that are unbelieving, and we need to understand the nature of unbelief so we can understand how we can minister to, to people who are unbelieving, but also when the spirit of unbelief creeps into our own heart, we can know what that is and be able to minister to our own heart. So what I want to do today is I want to help us understand unbelief afresh from these words. And far from seeing um, condemnation, I want to point to verse number 7. Oh, that salvation for Israel will come out of Zion. That's going to be the key to understanding the blessing that's in Psalm 14. So as we read... Pay attention to um, the plight of the unbeliever. And also pay attention to um, the, the grace that comes as a result of it. Uh, Albert, do you mind just turning it down a tad? Seems to be a, a little loud, and I don't wanna I don't wanna burst anybody's eardrums once they start getting a little excited. Which which could happen, you know, you never know. You just you just never know. Never know. Um, but God's word's exciting, right? So if I get a little bit excited that's okay because this is God's word. So let's let's read God's word. Psalm 14. The fool says in his heart there is no god. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. To Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great terror. For God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor. But the Lord is his refuge. Here's the key. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. All flesh is as grass, and the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of the Lord shall endure forever. And this is the word that will be preached unto you. Amen and amen. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for today. Father, what a blessed, holy, beautiful truth that you are the refuge of our weary souls. We thank you for being that refuge. We thank you that we can flee to you and receive rest. Lord, this is the day of rest, the day when your people come to be refreshed by resting in your truth, resting in the beauty of your holiness, resting in the fact that you restore us in our inward being and you restore our minds. This restoration is a glorious truth and for that we praise you and we thank you and we lift up your name and we magnify you for who you are as God. And so, Father, even now, restore your people. Help us to see the wonder of our salvation and the joy of our salvation afresh. And help us to give glory to you. In Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen and amen. Um, in, in the book of Matthew... We have written an account at the birth of Jesus, a group of men coming from the East. And these group of men who came from the East were men of great learning. They were intellectual, uh, the intellectuals of their time. And they used their great intellect, their knowledge of science, their knowledge of geography, their knowledge of philosophy and astronomy... They use their knowledge of, of the terrain and the like, and they, used, uh, they took an extended period of time, some suggest years, and they searched for a child. And the Bible tells us that this came at great cost to them, and they were, had to be particularly savvy because not everyone was seeking after this child. The Bible says finally after all that time and that effort that they employed, they finally found the Christ child and they brought him gifts and we know what those gifts are, right? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and even more than that possibly. And what do we call these men? We call them wise men. And why do we call these men wise men? It wasn't because of their intelligence. No. We call them wise men because these were men who had the mindset of seeking out Jesus, the Savior, the Christ. We call them wise men because they knew that all the signs pointed to a Redeemer and they would stop at nothing in heart pursuit of the Redeemer. They expended all of their intellect, all of their time, all of their money, all of their ingenuity, all of it, even though they were far away geographically. You know, that's the equivalent of going from here to, I don't know, Florida to search out Christ. Can you imagine going from here to Florida for church? Some of you are like, no. Of course not. That's far. But they did it. Because they wanted to see Jesus. So Matthew calls them the wise men. The wise men. Well, in our passage here today, we have the opposite of wise men. We have a fool. And the reason why the fool is called a fool is because the fool says... There is no God. The wise men in Matthew said there was a God, and they went searching for a God, but the fool is the opposite. The fool says there is no God, and then the fool goes out of their way to not search God. And they marshal all of their intellect and ingenuity and time and effort to prove the opposite of that fact. Now, as we come to this passage and we look at the fact that the mindset of the fool says that there is no god i want to delve in a little bit deeper because i want us to help i want to help us today to understand why a fool says there is no god and then i want to end by talking about why wise people end up seeking after god and so as we look at this passage i want to ask and answer three questions here are the three questions What does it mean to be a fool? That's verse number one, right? What causes fools to act foolishly? That's verse number two through six. And then lastly, how can a fool become wise? How can a fool become wise? And that will be verse number seven. First of all, what does it mean to be a fool? What does it mean to be a fool? Now in our day, in our time, if you call somebody a fool, that's... That's a bad thing. You're saying something about their intellect. You're saying something about this person. You're essentially calling them an idiot. It's very pejorative to call someone a fool. But in the Bible, uh, especially the Old Testament, the word fool isn't looked at like that. In fact... The Hebrews had a very rich understanding and theology and words when it came to fool because the fool was a way of describing someone who is not wise. And there were five distinct words that the Hebrews used to describe different kinds of foolish people, right? And let me tell you, all of us, all of these words are true of us to one degree or the other, right? The first one is the simple fool, the simple fool. Now, the simple fool... Was someone who was unsophisticated. This is, these are the people that are most vulnerable. These are the gullible people. These tend to be children and young adults. No offense, right? Because you simply don't know that much about the world. You lack wisdom. And so because you lack wisdom, you believe just about anything and you follow any little wild doctrine, right? And by the way, Christians can be like that. Adults can be like that. We can follow any little wild wind of doctrine without looking at the facts. And so the Bible says that we're simple fools. In fact, the, the, the Proverbs were written, as we know from Proverbs 1-4, to give subtlety to the simple fool, to the young man, knowledge and discretion, and so the, the Bible says that the simple fool, those that are, that are just not wise and savvy, you need wisdom. And that's why the Proverbs were written. And the only way to stop being a simple fool is through, is through patient and consistent education and knowledge in God's Word. The next is the silly fool. Proverbs tells us, and the Psalms as well. And the silly fool is a little bit different. The silly fool believes that he's right in his own eyes. In fact, Proverbs twelve fifteen says, the way of the fool is right in his own eyes. And so the silly fool is someone who um, believes that he's right, and he will not be persuaded by argumentation and logic and persuasion. None of these will work on the silly fool because he's convinced that he's right. And only harsh punishment can get us out of being a silly fool. That's why every now and then, when, at least when I was growing up, I got spankings, right? Um, because foolishness is bound in the heart of the child, but the rod of correction will drive it out. Now, relax. I'm not saying spank over everything. Some of the kids gave a collective sigh of relief. Woo! You know, Pastor Dennis said, don't spike us over everything, right? No, but the rod of correction does mean correct. Correct. You must be corrected because this foolishness, this silly foolishness, is bound up in the heart. Now, if silly foolishness goes uncorrected, you have the third level, which is a little bit higher, and that's sensual foolishness. Sensual foolishness. Now, these are the people who are full of guile. That they pursue after uh, foolish things. The Bible says that these are the people that have no shame. The writer of the Proverbs in Proverbs 10 says it is a sport to a fool, this sensual fool, to do mischief. These are the people that like to do foolishness and pursue after foolishness. And the Bible says the same thing. Only harsh, harsh punishment can deal with the sensual fool. The fourth category is the scoffing fool. And we know this from Psalm 1. We're told not to sit in the seat of the what? Scornful. Because the scoffing fool is a scorner. The person that turns up their nose at other people. The person that, that just dismisses things as if it's nothing. This is the scornful fool. And the final one, the final one is the steadfast fool. And this is the one that is most dangerous of all because this is the one that's in our passage here today. The steadfast fool is the one who says there is no God. One commentator says it this way. This type of fool is self-confident and closed minded He is his own God, freely gratifying his lower nature. No wonder this kind of fool mentioned here, this, this steadfast fool is said to not believe that there's a God because he establishes himself As a God. Now, the Bible gives us a vivid example of this steadfast fool, and his name is Nabal, right? Or Nabal, however you want to say that, in 1 Samuel 25. Everybody remember that story? Now, interestingly enough, the word Nabal or Nabal is the Hebrew word for a steadfast fool. So imagine being called that, right? Now, it is believed that his mother didn't actually call him Nabal, okay? That's a word that came to be used to describe him because he was a steadfast fool. Now, what made Nabal a steadfast fool, you might say? Well, if you go back to 1 Samuel 25, you'll see that Nabal was actually a very wealthy man. And he owned lots and lots of sheep. And during that time, when you were a wealthy man and you owned a lot of sheep, you couldn't necessarily afford to hire a bunch of people. And so what you did, you said, hey, if you want to take care of my sheep, if you want to provide and protect for them and make sure nobody steals them, we, you know, I'll give you, when sharing time comes, I'll give you a cut of the profits. And so this was, this was understood. Everybody understood that this was the role that they had during that time. And so David's men did that. David's men protected his sheep and took care of his sheep and made sure no wild beast or no one else came and took it. And so when sharing time came... And Nabal was giving out the prophets. David's men came, 10 of them, and said, hey, can, I, can we have some provisions? We're on the run from Saul. We need some provisions. And what did Nabal do? The Bible said that he ridiculed them, he belittled them, and he treated them in, in an inhumane way. Nabal knew what was required of him. He knew what was the right thing to do. And the Bible said he did not do it. In fact, the Bible said that he embodied a fool because he was willfully and destructively blind regarding the ways of the world. And beloved, that is the heart of the steadfast fool, someone who is willfully blind to the way the world works. And this is the point of Psalm 14. The fool is someone who knows that there is a God. He knows what he is supposed to do, which is worship the Lord, and he refuses to worship the Lord. He refuses to do what is required of him. And this refusal is a matter of the heart. Notice with me in verse number one, the fool says in his heart they believe that there is no God. A fool doesn't deny God based on his intellect. He, devi- he, de- he despises God or he says there's no God because of the nature of his heart, the emotions and the feelings that's what's inside of his heart. It's on the basis of his desires, his sinful desires, his emotions, the fact that he doesn't care about God. That is the essence of his unbelief. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a famous... Um, English preacher, some of you know his works, gives a beautiful illustration of this. There's a man one day came to Martin Lloyd-Jones, and he says, you know, I don't believe in God. And Martin Lloyd-Jones says, that's interesting, why? And so the man says, well, um, I don't believe in God because several years ago my wife had a horrible disease and she got really sick. And so Martin Lloyd-Jones says, huh, so you don't believe in God because your wife was sick and felt ill and your wife uh, wasn't doing well. Is that why you don't believe in God? And he said, yes. And Martin Lloyd-Jones looks at him and says, listen to me, this is an emotional response to one incident, that this is a flimsy reason for you to not believe in God, because it's based solely on your emotions. And Martin Lloyd-Jones quoted him, the writer of the Psalms, where he said, it is good for me to be afflicted, because when I was afflicted, If I had not been afflicted, sorry, I would have gone astray. And here's the point that Martin Lloyd-Jones is making to this man. He said that this man was turned away from God. He said there was no God because there was an incident happening in his life. And because of his emotional state, he said there is no God. That this wasn't based on evidence or his intellect. This wasn't based on the facts. This was based solely on the fact that this thing had happened to him. He rejected God. And Martin Lloyd-Jones said to him that emotions come and go and they changed. If he lived in the valley, Martin Lloyd-Jones probably would have said his emotions changed like the weather in the valley. But this is true of all of us. Our emotions are up and down. They're not a good indicator if God truly exists. And so when the fool says in his heart there is no God, he's making a judgment or an interpretation based on feelings and not facts. And Martin R. Jones was right to to rebuke him as a result of that. So that's the first thing. What is the definition of a fool? Well, a fool is someone who in his heart, based on emotions, believes that God doesn't exist, and he's willfully blind to the facts. Notice the second thing. What causes a fool to act foolishly? What causes the fool to act foolishly? Well, if you notice in the psalm, the Bible said, at least a plain reading, is that a fool acts foolishly, Because he believes that here is no God. There is no God. That's why the fool acts foolishly. Now, an Old Testament scholar by the name of Robert Alter states that there's a step before that, before you and I rightly or you and I come to a place where we deny God. And And here's what he said, and I love this by Robert Alter. He says that the thrust of this line, in other words, verse number one, the thrust of this line is not moral, but rather theological. The concern is not a philosophical question of God's existence, but the scoundrel or the fool's lack of conscience. And here's what Robert Alter is saying. He says that the fool doesn't outright believe that there is no God. That before that happens, the fool actually comes to a place where his conscience has been seared. His conscience has been seared. Now, you might say, well, Pastor Dennis, what does it mean to have a seared conscience? Well, Paul tells us in Romans 2.15, They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. What is the conscience for? Well, the conscience convicts us of sin. Our conscience convicts us of sin. And if our conscience, in convicting us of sin, if we deny that conscience, if we say that, that listen, I don't want to believe this. I don't want to believe that these things are wrong that I'm doing. If we continue um, to deny our conscience, the Bible says that will lead us to not believe that there's a God. Now, if we don't believe that there's God, a God and our conscience is scared, notice what the Bible says, the kinds of behavior that we fall into. Notice with me from verse number two down to verse number six, beginning at verse number one. Notice the logic of the psalmist here. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Why? Because his conscience has been seared. And then notice the behavior that he is led to. The Bible says that he's led to corrupt behavior in verse number one. That uh, he's led to abominable deeds in verse number one. That there's no goodness in him. Then if you drop down to verse number two, it says that he lacks understanding. God is looking down and there was no one that lacks understanding. And then in verse number three, it says that he is turned aside, that there's none that does good. And then in verse number four, the fool lacks knowledge and he's an evildoer and they destroy good people. Notice again at the bottom of verse 4, and he says, and they don't call upon the Lord. In other words, the fool is someone who doesn't pray because they don't call upon the Lord. And then in verse number 5, it says they are in great terror. What is the Bible saying here? Well, the Bible is saying that the fool lives in constant fear. And then in verse number 6, it says that the fool always are in the process of hurting people. These are the deeds of the fool. And the Bible warns us of these. Now, you might be saying to me, well, Pastor Dennis, what are you saying here? Are you saying that unbelievers can't do anything right? That they can't act in a moral way? No, that's not what I'm saying at all. Now, I have friends that are unbelievers that act in an incredibly moral way. I have friends that are unbelievers that because of common grace, they do great and noble things. So then, Pastor Dennis If believers and unbelievers do good things, what is the benefit of being a believer? Why not just be an unbeliever? Well, here's the benefit of being a believer, in my opinion. It's because the difference is manifested in trials. The difference is manifested in trials. Here's what I mean by that. Several years ago, I was a part of um, a book club. And the book club was uh, studying the problem of evil in the world. And in the book club, we ended up studying the Holocaust. And we read two books. Uh, well, actually, we followed two people and their writings. And the first one is Eli Weasel Knight. Anybody ever read that book? If you haven't read that book, I, I highly, if you, and you want to understand the problem of evil, I highly recommend it. Eli Wiesel talks about um, the night that he was taken into the concentration camp and all the things that happened as a result of that. And here's what Eli Wiesel says. He said, Never shall I forget the night, the first night in camp, which has turned my life into one long night, seven times cursed and seven times sealed. Never shall I forget those moments which murdered my God and my soul and turned my dreams into dust. When trials came, Eli Wiesel said that he lost his um, love and desire for God, and he saw others do the same, and that led them to do the most horrific things. Contrast that then with the writings of Corrie ten Boom. Corrie ten Boom, of course, her family uh, tried to help the Jews, later found out her and her sister taken to a concentration camp. Her sister died. She was let go by a clerical error. And later forgave the Nazis that so tortured her and her family and six million other Jews. And here's what Cory ten Boom says. You can never learn that Christ is all you need until Christ is all you have. Now hear me today. For everyone in this room, it's easy to act in a moral, good fashion when everything is going well. But the moment that the trials and the temptations and the testing comes, it will reveal something about the nature of our hearts. Because either we're going to be like Eli Weasel and turn our backs on God and be a fool, or we're going to be like Corey ten Boom and exercise wisdom and hold on to God even more in these terrible and awful times. Beloved, here's a piece of encouragement for you, and I've used it over and over during this period of time. Like the wise men, I encourage you to seek after the Lord in difficult times. COVID-19 has tested all of us in our faith. I love the testimony that was given how um, the Wallach saw that prayer, consistent prayer and faith, bold prayer and faith in God, led to a wise reckoning of what God was doing in their lives and this is the point the wise reckoning when we undergo trials and testing and tribulations do we sit down and have a heart of wisdom and recognize what God is doing for us or do we have a fool's heart and blame God for all that is going wrong in our lives that's the difference The difference comes when trials and testings and tribulation happens. The fool is going to look in his heart and says, no, God. The wise person is going to look in their heart and says, yes, God, what are you training and teaching us? Now, notice the last thing. How can a fool become wise? Look at verse number seven. Verse number seven is a plea, as it were, to God to restore the fool. Remember, uh, some people look at this and see this as a lament for the fool in, um, in their time, but this is not fully what's happening here. This is a lament for God's people, that the foolishness of God's people will be turned into wisdom. That's why the psalmist says in verse number seven, oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. What is he talking about? Well, he's praying for God to make the foolish wise and to restore the foolish so that they are wise. And beloved, can I tell you that salvation for Israel did come out of Zion and his name is what? Jesus Christ. Think about it with me for a moment. Christ died the death of a fool. He received the fool's punishment so that you and I would not be fools. And so that you and I cannot suffer the fool's punishment. Christ died a death of a fool on the cross to make you and I wise unto salvation. And so that we can have enough wisdom and give us a heart of wisdom so that we might know the living God. And it's through Christ, through Christ, we are given the true wisdom like the wise men to pursue after God. This is what he means in verse number 7. That when salvation comes out of Zion, the Lord's people will be restored. The fortunes of God's people will be restored and we'll rejoice and be glad. Why? Because we've been given a heart of wisdom. The blessing and the glory that we have today, beloved, is that we don't have to be fools. We were given the tools of wisdom, and the tools of wisdom is belief in Christ. Now, I get it. The world will look at our religion and say, it is foolishness. How is it that you believe that a man died and rose again and was carried into heaven? How is it that you believe that he'll come back for you one day? and you'll uh, spend the rest of your life in some celestial city or here on earth. The world looks at all of this and says, what? Foolishness. But the Bible says this is not foolishness. This is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. This is the wisdom of God. And the wisdom of God will always, uh, the fool will always look at the wisdom of God and say it's foolishness. But the wise looks at the wisdom of God and says it is wise. And so how do we become, how does the fool become wise? By salvation in Christ. By having their hearts and minds renewed. Because salvation for Israel has come out of Zion. And his name is Jesus Christ. And so beloved, please know that we have all the tools in this life to be wise And to make others wise unto salvation, let us use it and avail ourselves of it. Christian, hold fast to the wisdom of God. In every situation, apply that wisdom to your heart. Do not become a fool and deny God. Do not become a fool and question God. Instead, hold on to the wisdom of God to know that he's true and right. And unbelievers, encourage the unbelievers to not live in a state of foolishness, but instead embrace the wisdom of your God and experience the beauty and the grace and the glorious reality that God has for us in the scriptures. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for this time. We thank you so much for the beauty and the holiness of your grace. Lord, as I think about it, all of us at one point were fools. We were all fools walking after the course of this world. We were all fools in the sense, Father, that we once was in unbelief. But now, O oh Lord, help us, help your people to become wise. We thank you that through salvation we were made wise. That through salvation we do believe. Father, we thank you so much for the goodness of your grace and your mercy. Bless us, your people, now in Jesus' name. Amen.